Hey, Dan, this is uh, the, the Dulcimer Geek Podcast, and you are my partner in crime, ladies and gentlemen, Dan Landrum. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever it is that you happen to be listening to this, this nonsense. Hey, Steve, we've got some really nice comments. I don't believe it. Yeah, it's really encouraging. I've actually gotten email. We're beginning to get email from people. You're getting email? Yeah, about the podcast, so that's cool. They haven't Thank complained you, about our sense of whatever. The complaints will come, but it's fun. Our, our, and and <laughs> almost to a person, the comments are like, yeah, they ramble a little bit. <laughs> well, that's but, our job. Yeah, that's what we do. And you know, what I'd really like to do is anybody who has some serious complaints, we want to identify you as soon as possible. So send us those complaints. <laughs> that's right. And we will promptly tell our email program to ignore your email address. Hey, look, it's important as early as you can in life to realize a couple of things. What's that? Yeah, we're going heavy, deep, quick. Come on. First off, most people aren't thinking about you. When you're self-conscious about yourself, you're wasting energy because they're not thinking true. about Most you. Most people are trying to deal with all the stuff they got to deal with every day. Which is the same kind of stuff that you have to deal with. Yeah. So we, seriously, just appreciative that this uh, has listeners and you guys aren't going, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Of course, those people aren't going to say anything. So, And uh, I said a couple of things. I don't really have another one, but unless maybe this is it, is that... Uh, if you are the kind of person that's actually going to do stuff, you're going to be criticized. Oh, isn't that great? Very true, isn't it? I think so. And I would say if you spend the majority of your time criticizing other people, you don't have enough to do. You're criticizing somebody in saying that, though. No, no, no. I was saying, no, that is not true. If you really want to break this down and analyze exactly what I was doing, you're going to need a chart. <laughs> A Venn diagram. You're, you might be onto something, but I don't think you you got the whole thing wrapped up. I'll tell you something I am onto. What's that? This is uh, we're go we're going uh, really deep on the hammer dulcimer side, which we maybe have been doing too much lately. A little too much hammer dulcimer there. I know nobody said that. But no, that's they're going good. to. But hammer dulcimer players who are listening to this, I am. Uh, very excited about something that I think I've discovered, or I should say maybe Sam Rosetta discovered it, or it's kind of a combination thereof. I've complained. Uh, well, here we go again. It just insert the disclaimer that we always make What's about that? about builders, about we don't want to leave anybody else out or leave anybody out, and we know that this is dangerous. We're but gonna, gonna leave anyway. people out. Right. That's all there is to it. And we're not, I, you know, I love dampers on a hammered dulcimer. I like the sound and everything about it. It's one of the things that attracted me to it and has kept me interested in it. Okay. The only, oh gosh, I'm going to make somebody mad, what but I'm going to get to something where everybody's going to be okay with it. So stay with me. I'll bail on you, dude. If you go psycho, <laughs> I won't go psycho. The, uh, the damper felt on the dusty strings instruments is one of the main reasons I've stuck just with that company nice felt. For, the, for the most part. It's really soft French felt, and I don't care how soft or hard it is. I care how it sounds. And it uh, taking this thing off in another direction, one of the main problems people have when they play auto harp is that their felts mess up, hmm. yeah. and they're constantly working on those felts. Oh, when the felts get too hard and compressed, they got to change them out. Why? Well, you tell me. It's because they start to create harmonics on the strings. They actually cease being dampening devices. By the way, I looked that up once. I heard somebody say dampening, and I thought, that just means to make it wet. That's not what it means. It also means to mute. So they stop being dampening devices and become bridges. Yeah, the harder and, they get. And very ineffective bridges, so <laughs> they only create harmonics, right? And so what I've heard in lots of... And, and I teach damper classes every now and then at festivals. And I'm always a little disappointed when I jump up and go around the room to show other people cool stuff that they can do on their instruments in that, oh, I end up thinking, wow, you kind of can't do that thing that I'm doing because the sounds that are coming from these strings don't sound good. I can see why you wouldn't want to use the dampers. I'm believing now that that problem on everybody's instrument 
who's having problems with it has to do with the density of the felt. And the reason I'm leaning in this direction has to do with my brand new carbon fiber instrument. And I didn't like the way the damper sounded either. And they were expensive. And Sam said, well, we'll make it so you'd like them. And uh, he did some research and I did some research and found there are, there are things that people do. Now, on an auto harp, it's relatively thin felt that gets compressed. And one of the things, and I'm not suggesting this, any manufacturers who build me, I'm not telling people to do this, but they'll use sandpaper and just rough up the top edge of the felt. But that doesn't work on these hammer dulcimer felts because they're about probably half inch to three quarters of an inch thick. And you've, you need the whole thing to compress. Well, it turns out if you take a tea kettle and boil water in it. I'm a little teapot. <laughs> short and stout, and you open up the lid, you can change the density of your felt by steaming it. And according to Sam Rosetta... 18%. 18%. What? <laughs> what does that mean? It becomes 18% less dense. Do you think that I could put you over a tea kettle? I would, <laughs> and I'd be less dense? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'd be fluffier, that's for sure. Yep. By the way, if you choose to do this, and disclaimer, I'm not telling you that you should. You really should. I'm not telling you you should, but if you don't like the way your dampers sound, you probably should. Don't do this because you could probably damage something. You're going to damage something. Oh, my goodness. It made such a difference. It made all the difference in the world. Because you were going to have him like put new felt on there and make it wider. And then he yeah. suggested you do this, and you said it fixed it. It fixed it. That's pretty wild. And, and it makes me wonder if on a lot of these other instruments, and I'm not going to name the builders, but it's pretty much all the others whose instruments I love, but the dampers, I just haven't been able to go, oh, I love that too. I wonder if those felts were steamed, it would work. I have played hammer dulcimers where I tried the dampers and it seemed like it didn't quite dampen the sound to the degree I expected it would. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of, there, there's a secondary emergent property of felt being too hard as well. Uh, so, so one is it's not dampening enough. Second one we mentioned is the harmonics. The third one is you try to overcome the fact that it's not dampening enough by pressing the pedal harder, which makes the note go sharp. And probably a fourth, if you do that too much, you're going to knock it out of tune. And you're going to break your pedal wire or whatever. Yeah, I've never had that happen, but you could. And so the, the one caveat on this thing is that because you're making the felt more open it takes more travel to work the dampers does that make sense yeah so yeah so and that's it, it it doesn't you know it doesn't hurt to have some french addition to the american instrument i, th I think this <laughs> I country guess. itself has always had a certain french element to it Think so. Oh, I should add this here. So here's the last thing, and then I'll maybe we should talk about mountain dolls. Oh, I got something. I got something that's better. Okay, well, here's keep the last. Going, keep going. There, there, there's two last things. It takes about so. Here's the last two things. It didn't take that long to do it, and uh, and, and I just I kept the felt on the bars. I took the bars off, and you can steam them from the side or the top. But recognize if your dampers are wooden that you're going to be putting water on your wooden dampers. You can see where that could cause you a problem on mine because they're carbon fiber and there's, uh, you know, that wasn't an issue. So you might want to figure out a way to wrap your dampers and keep them dry during this process. I always recommend people wrap their dampers. I think that's a good idea. But I think also this is not something you do every day or once a week, right? You, you suspect that it's going to, going to last for a little, it's while. going to last for a long time, but recognize that it's hard to, overdo it if you steam them for a long time they don't go to 25 percent softer or 40 percent softer. it's 18 percent. it's 18 percent. we're just taking his word on that we are but you know what i i was skeptical and i but you could see the dampers actually the ones that i had done had expanded and the ones that i hadn't done had not expanded so over time i suspect there's a possibility that they would stomp back down you know get compressed again and you might have to do it again but i don't know i, I never have had to do that before like i i was um i got some old ham radio equipment recently and 
I was over at a guy's house yesterday, and he was saying these radios keep them absolutely away from any kind of moisture at all. He said, I wouldn't even open the windows in the house. Really? So that's, Just because you get rust inside on things? Basically. But, um, Wait, hey, can I give you my last point? And I promise I'll shut up. You've got like points. You're, you're I told like you there were pointed. There were, you're like a, a hedgehog. There were two last points. One we just went over. And the last, last point is there's another method you can do, and it's called needling the felt. Uh, I did not try needling because steaming is much more efficient. But if you're afraid to steam them, you could take your dampers off, flip them upside down, and just take a really sharp needle and poke holes through the side a whole bunch. Just It would be tedious, but it would probably get the job done. And there are a couple of notes that I still am not fully satisfied with, and I'm probably going to specifically needle those felts. And I'm done. Well, I think I think it's interesting. You know, you could say, "Hey, if you don't like broccoli, it's because you're not you're not you're not dealing with it right. You're not cooking it right. You don't you know. If you don't like dampers, maybe, well, that could be true. Maybe right? you've got yeah. Maybe you've got some. Maybe you're missing something. I mean, I'll tell you, there's some band jammers out there that people have decided they don't like. But if I stick a handkerchief in the back of it, if I weave some felt uh, through the strings between the bridge and, and where the strings contact the instrument, you know, there's certain things I can do that, to me, totally transform that instrument. Yeah. You know, and these instruments good. are like people. They're like people, right? If, uh, if you could, sometimes if you could hear what some, not hear what somebody's saying, if you could read the words that someone says on paper, You'd be like, oh, yeah, I agree with that. But when you hear them say them, you disagree. And it's something, it's not necessarily the words, it's something else. And that something else on mountain dulcimers and hammer dulcimers is often harmonics. What do you mean harmonics? I know what, I know what harmonics are, but what do you mean? Well, in, anytime you stretch a string out or anything that you could get tone out of, it has its fundamental tone, right? Right. Well, there's these other tones that go in to making it have its timbre. Right. Various amplitudes along the, the harmonic series. That's right. And if you eliminated all of those, everything would sound like a sine wave. Right. Just be a perfectly pure tone. And a trumpet then would sound just like a piccolo. Or, you know, but you can't. Well, maybe you can do that, but I don't know how to do it. And I don't want to do it because I like the variety that we have in life and in instruments and people and voices and but some of sometimes little things that we do are annoying <laughs> and we may not even notice it one of mine one of the advantages of doing this podcast is i've listened to a few of them and i think that's not that bad but i catch myself saying things that i think i don't want to say that I need to eliminate that from my vocabulary. For instance, in the last one that we did, I said kinda a lot. I said kinda and what was the other thing? Stuff. I use the word stuff. I don't think people are thinking about you as much as you think they are. Because most <laughs> people are just trying to get through the day. But that little thing, they may not be thinking about it. They may think, that's an interesting podcast, but that Dan, he just gets on my nerves. And it could be because of those kinds of little things. And what is that? The hardest as a scientist, which I'm going to say we both, we all are in a way, as far as our own lives are concerned, the easiest person to fool is yourself. So I like the idea of listening to yourself back on a recording and being judgmental of yourself and not worrying about other people. If it bugs you, fix it. That's why I try to work on my vocabulary. Well, good for you, Dan. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to talk about capos now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so here's what's cool about mountain dulcimer capos. Do you know the one thing you can't hide about yourself is your vocabulary? I don't think that's true. Tell me something else. that I mean, you can fool people on all kinds of things. What's, uh, 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 say the question again. Well, my seventh grade teacher said this, so she has to be right. Is the one thing that you can't hide about yourself is your vocabulary. The one thing that you can't hide. 
You cannot hide your vocabulary. What? When you open your mouth, you reveal. Oh, no, 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 no. You can't. This, I'm not saying this is a universal truth, but Just my seventh grade teacher. Just don't open your mouth. Okay. That's going to be hard for me and you. I don't know that you can hide your odor. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't think you can. Are you speaking of mine in particular? or? <laughs> and I would say you can't hide your existential presence. <laughs> Ooh. Um, Whatever that means. You can't hide if you don't understand the difference between sentience and sapience. This is so terrible. Listen, these capos, I think okay. I figured something out. Number one, there's a capo out there that's been around a long time, and it needs a little bit of help. Um, You're being careful right now, aren't you? Yes. Okay. Because I haven't given up on this capo. And there's a myth about why this capo doesn't work well. It's if you if you show it to most experienced people, they'll be like, "Well, that doesn't work because of that." And I'm not going to say what that is. And I don't think that's true. I don't think the most common reason is relevant, maybe at all. Um, it might be a little, but there's two issues here. Number one, I think most people are putting their capos on wrong, and I, I'm. I'm willing to go to the mat on this one, and I will talk about that. And secondly, I think the material that actually comes in contact with the strings, that matters a lot. But this capo that's kind of not, it's not working right now, but it could totally work for everybody. It's got like a, where the sides of it come into contact with the sides of your fingerboard. They're too soft. I think if those sides were hard, and I don't want to say sticky, but let's just say not slick, um, I think they work great. So that reminded me of what you're dealing with a little bit is um, here's something that everybody's kind of made a conclusion about, and I think we could change that pretty easily. But let me tackle this idea. The top, the thing that comes into contact with the strings, some people like that to be kind of mushy a little or maybe a little harder, but still they want it to give. Like, for instance, a hard rubber or something. Mm, well, let's say a medium rubber. I, I don't know. I think the thing that, need, that comes into contact with the strings, I think that has to be just absolutely hard, period. No give at all. Not at all? Not even a little rubbery surface, like a hard rubber surface? No. Okay. Well, maybe super hard rubber. I don't know. Like, I don't know. All I can tell you is my Ron Ewing capo kicks butt. I don't want to leave anybody out here. <laughs> but the Ron Ewing capo... What? Ron Ewing, a Dulcimer Players News advertiser. <laughs> whatever. So this strip, whatever he puts in there, I don't think it's those magnetic strips, but it reminds me of something like that, you know? It's just something that's hard. And there's other capos I use where this, where the thing that comes into contact with the strings is not hard. And I'm telling you, it gives me problems. Now, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, and I haven't done a full scientific evaluation of all this. But here's something else. I think we've all been putting these capos on wrong. Maybe not everybody. But check this idea out. When you have a fret and you put a capo on, let's say you put it onto the left of the fourth fret so that there's, I don't know, like an eighth of an inch between the edge of the capo and the fret. Can you imagine that? Yes. Well, the, that capo, you're going to push the strings downward. And at some point where the strings leave the fret, they ramp back up to the fret, you know. And there's so much potential there for pushing too hard on one side of the capo, not hard enough on the other. And what you end up doing when you push harder is you end up bending one or more strings sharp. And so, But not all of them equally. Yeah, so what's not uncommon is somebody puts a capo on where there's like an eighth, inch between the edge of the capo and the fret 
and they've pushed a little too hard, let's say on the bass string side, and their bass will be sharp, you know? Um, or they might... Wow, you know what, Steve? What? It just occurs to me, so thinking about this mechanically, huh. Don't steal my string, thunder, dude. No, I'm not. But the bass string, because it's thicker, if you, if you pulled it down absolutely parallel you would be pulling the bass string down harder than the high strings because it's thicker. Well, it's also got a thin core string. I don't know. I'm not a physicist. I'd really like to get a physicist on this show. If you could, I'm not kidding. If you could find a physicist that would do this show with us, we, we, we each could have a field well, day the thing, with that. Yeah, the thing about physicists is, is they're very specialized. They're, you know, they're... Uh, they kind of just do one thing. That was good. The thing is, see, I was thinking the physicists are, but it was the thing. That was the noun of the sentence, thing. Right? <laughs> the thing yes. is. The thing the is. The thing about physicists is. Right. Okay, but let me say what I think is going to fix this capo situation. And this happened to me a few years ago. Um, so I was sharing a dressing room at a very nice venue with the Turtle Island String Quartet, but I didn't know I was in there with them because on the, on the door, it said Stephen Seifert and it also said T-I-S-Q. Okay. So I'm sharing the, the room with T-I-S-Q. I don't know who that is, right? Anyway, these guys were cool. And I was also sharing the room with John Jorgensen, and he's a great guitar player in town. So I'm sitting there warming up, and I got my capo on, and this John Jorgensen fellow, who's just a great guitarist, he's, he gets real close to me, gets down on his knees, and he's just really watching real close. And he comes up on that, that capo, and he says, you put your capo behind the fret? To the left of the fret? And I said, yep, why is that? He said, well, most people nowadays put it right on the fret. And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> so what he showed me right then is the way I've been doing it ever since. And, and I do not go out of tune anymore, Dan. Ooh, this is good. This is good. I don't go out of tune anymore when I put a capo on. Uh, used to, I didn't go out of tune most of the time because I'd learned how hard to push. But with this, it's not an, a factor anymore. So you put the capo on so that the edge of the capo hides half of the metal fret. Does that make sense? If you're looking, if you want a capo at four, you're gonna look at the fourth fret space, and and your fourth fret is the. Hold on, let me, metal. let me grab a dulcimer. Wait, 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 wait. You're wait. gonna try this. Well, I just want to have a dulcimer in my hands. Oh man, okay. don't strum it. It's yeah, it's attitude. Okay, you got a capo there. Oh, no, there used to be one stuck to this. This is a nice little McSpadden in my hands right now, but I don't. Uh... I don't. So you don't. But, ever... but help me visualize. So I've got this thing. All right, you I'm got gonna it. pretend pretend like my fingers are the capo. fourth fret space. The piece of metal to the right is the fourth fret, and you're gonna put the edge, the right edge of that capo, so that it obscures half of that metal fret, and this, and the other half is visible to you. Wow, that's that's very precise. Now, when you push down on the capo, you will not be pushing on the middle of the capo. You're going to push on the right side so that you're pushing directly over the fret and not over the left of the fret. Does that make and sense? And it's lined up right over the center of that fret. The right edge of the capo is lined up right over the center. Of you're the able to see the right half of the fret, but the left right. half is hidden by the edge of the capo. And when you push down, use two fingers, push down evenly, and you push down on the right edge of the capo, not the center of it. And you're going to have to push harder than what you're used to a little bit and then tighten that sucker down. And what happens is you can't bend that string sharp. Does that make sense? Yeah, you're making the fret be the capo. Well, you're, right? you're not putting the capo to the left of the fret where the string can can be bent by pushing 
Because right, you're not stretching the string, you're just changing the effective length. And you can push pretty hard, and as long as you're pushing directly over that fret, you're not going to go out of tune. And the, and the main experience for me is like, I realized, wow, i got to push a little harder than what I'm used to. But now that I'm used to it, man, it's such a pleasure. Because even before, when I thought I was in tune, it was a little tiny bit out. Now, isn't there something if you're, because of the way mountain dulcimer is any instrument that has bridges and and, and and a nut on it and all that, isn't it going to be out of tune because of intonation at some fret? Like if you go high enough, it's not going to be perfect all the way up, right? Well, I int- when I take it to my setup guy, we intonate the bridge. So for sure, the seventh fret is absolutely, when you fret seven on any string. Hey, let's, let's do nomenclature for a minute. The bridge being the one by your pick hand. Yeah, the strumming And the side. nut being the thing on the uh, machine side, to right. the machine side. Yeah. So on the right side, there's little, let's keep this simple for now. There's little tiny adjustments that can be made to the bridge, or some people call it the saddle. It's, it's where this... It's where the strings first start to resonate on your on your strumming side of the instrument. Little tiny adjustments there mean you play more in tune up at the high frets. Right. So I'm I'm looking at this bridge or this saddle on my McSpadden right now, and it's not just a straight piece of wood. It has, you know, like the little slots cut in them. Right. But even those slots, some of the slots are cut with more of a uh more of a valley as the string approaches in the business side. You're basically, here's one way David Beatty has done it. I don't know that he is doing it now. He might be, but this is a neat idea. Instead of having one bridge for three strings, you have three tiny bridges, one for each string. And because the open vibrating string, the unfretted vibrating portion of each string should actually be a slightly different uh, length. And, and Can you say why that is? I've had a number of people tell me why, but I, I have to admit that here's the ideal solution. I don't want to get too deep into this. Really, if you really want to get nerdy about it, you're going to have a different fret for not only each fret, but each string. So imagine the first fret of your dulcimer. If you have a three-string dulcimer and you really want to get nerdy, you'll have actually three frets. One for the bass string at one, one for the middle string at one, and one for the melody string at one. And and you might, if you look this up online, you'll find guitars with a fanned fret pattern. You have seen that. So... One thing you do with compensating the bridge, or like David Beatty made a tiny bridge for each string, and there's other ways to go about this, is you're somehow, you, we're talking about a very small difference too. Um, I don't know the math on it, Dan, but I'm just telling you, if you really want to be in tune up around the 11th fret and that kind of stuff, you can definitely make that happen. And I, th- I think that when I first met David Schnaufer, that was one of the things I realized. This guy has taken care of 10 seemingly insignificant little ideas, you know, and when you add all 10 of them together, you've got a comfortable instrument that sounds great and in tune all over. And so that's why I have a setup guy. And this is a good topic. So you might be listening to this and think, well, how can I make sure my strings, you know, my notes are in tune when I fret the higher frets? I mean, Dan, just like what you were saying with the damper pedal, some people have decided they don't like those pedals, maybe for something as simple as the the kind of felt that's on there or something. Uh, Right. I think, But they didn't know that. Right. Well, I think some people have decided not to play up high. Because even though it wasn't obvious to them, their ear can hear that they're out of tune up there, so they just don't like to go up there. Well, in my case, I'm I'm confessing right now that it was a revelation to me that 
oh, it might not be the construction of the dampers that was making me not like the way these dampers sounded right. on some of these other instruments. It really was. I was like, oh, I might have been. <laughs> I really, I was probably wrong in my assessment. I mean, it's a complex topic. If you really want to get nerdy about it, you're talking about a lot of math, and I don't want to learn the math. I'd really like to have somebody that I can trust to take care of this for me, and that's where the setup guy comes in. For me, that's Dan Blom, B-L-O-M. He lives in Fairview, Tennessee, worked with David Schnaufer a whole bunch for many years. He's repaired a lot of dulcimers. He's set up a lot of dulcimers, and setup is basically... Like, he keeps a file on me and what I like. So he knows for any given uh, length of instrument, vibrating string length, what string gauges I like, how high I like those to be, like every little detail. Um, and he makes sure that that bridge is intonated so that things are comfortable and in tune. And I love going to that guy. Uh, I can leave an instrument there and I'm like, well, I wonder if I really need to do this. When I go to pick it up, there is an emotional response inside me. And I hmm. just, I hear it and I play it and I think, why didn't I do this a year ago or two years ago? And well, that's, listen, that's the same, this whole process with me and Sam Rosetta on this instrument. I completely get where you're coming from. Well, because it's that attention to really tiny detail that makes the difference. Well, and, and we've all heard that story about the, you know, the, the violin at the auction. It's, it's going for nothing. And then this great player gets up and plays it. And now all of a sudden, you know, people are offering a lot of money for it. That's maybe not completely true. Because that player can only be a good player if the instrument in his or her hands makes him feel like, you know, there's something that the instrument has to give back to you. And I think that's that little bit of, uh, that's that accelerating factor in, I really want to pay attention to this and get better at this. Well, I think if that guy at the auction, the violinist, just, and we've talked about this before, just because he can make that thing sound good over a 30 second period at the auction, you know, he, so let's say he plays it for 30 seconds. Everybody's blown away. Now they all want to pay a million dollars for this thing. If that guy's worth his salt, he'll stop everybody and say, wait, wait, wait a minute. If <laughs> you right. want a good instrument that's going to be comfortable and allow you to play expressively and have good tone, even though I just impressed you guys, I would not recommend this instrument. You know? Wow. We're right at the base of something really important. That still, though, is a re people buy instruments because of the way they feel oh, you're gonna love this so that at the beginning the ham radio guy yesterday he was talking about in ham radio how you got all these opinions like somebody says oh kenward radios they're the best sounding ones period or somebody says a vibraplex bug is the only you know uh is the only thing to use, and if anybody uses something <laughs> else, a vibraplex bug. Well, that's a way of sending Morse code. So, okay. but he was saying that this guy wrote a, an article a few years back, and he said, you know, while there are specifications and facts that definitely go into these things, it was actually it was a guy who had one of the largest antenna farms in the world, and he was like a myth buster. I think he's near Atlanta. He's been like a myth buster of antenna theory. So like guys would say, well, this antenna is the best, period. Well, he would test it out and put it up against tons of antennas that were all active in this, like, many acres of land. So this guy wrote this article to say, you know, I've been myth busting all this stuff. But he said it really comes down to which antenna feels best to each person. He actually said the word feel, that although, you know, the facts do matter, if you're... Tell me how an antenna can feel good. Well, your grandpa told you you should only use, you know, you should only use a, a, a dipole for 40 meters. Your grandpa said that's the best way to go. And so even though there's other theories out there about what you could use for 40 meter CW, <laughs> you love your grandpa and when you use that antenna you remember him by it and for you yeah. it just feels good and that's what it comes down to and this article supposedly was talking about 
how a whole lot of what we do in a hobby has to do with what feels good. Yeah, Steve, I think what happens often is people, they they go to, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of a specific mill fair, a country fair, the Kettner's Mill Country Fair over in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee. So you go there and there's this, there's a creek and there's a mill and you're walking through this old grist mill and, and you're being nostalgic and you're thinking this is the way life ought to be. And, uh, there's, there's music playing off somewhere and there's kettle corn and you're just walking around and then nearby you hear somebody play a sound that just fits and you walk up and you're like, yeah, man, I like that. That makes me feel good. And the person says, Hey, you could do this, right? And they buy a dulcimer. And the whole thing feels great. The whole experience, it's pretty magical. Right. There's nothing wrong with that. No, it's good. And I, I would say, um, especially with a hobby, make sure it feels good to you, you know? Yeah, but they don't know at that point. Uh, no, well, they know it feels, feels good. Yeah. yeah, they know it feels emotionally good, but they don't know if the instrument feels right because they have no frame of reference. Right, and part of getting into a hobby and getting better at it is is um, kind of reconciling what feels right with what works best. You know, but I'm not right. always going to choose. You know, there's like here's one thing I love my um, my bag made by uh, Doug and Lee Felt. Uh, and I actually think it's perfect in a lot of ways, but part of me doesn't even want to look. I don't even want to find out if there's a better bag out there for me because I love Doug and Lee and they're like family. And I, every time I look at that thing, I think of them, you know, I mean, it's a great bag. I don't think I'm using a bad bag, but somebody might say, Hey, you can find a bag that's 2% better. Well, I don't care, you know? Hmm. Hmm. I don't think you would be sentimental about an instrument that you're using on a stage, though. Not as much. That's why I said you got to reconcile. Well, unless it was Gene Ritchie's instrument, and and then the sentiment would be part of of your presentation. Well, yeah, but I probably wouldn't play it the whole set. Right. Um. So, have you seen people come to you with fair bought dulcimers? Sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're not. I think the main issue is... Um, I'd rather them buy one than not buy one. Maybe, if they got a good deal on it. But somebody will come back and say, you know, this was $480. And I'll look at the frets, and they're actually not even parallel. It looks Ooh. slopped. And the, the nut, it's got this big glug of glue on it, and it's kind of <laughs> not even... Or the strings are real high. Um, I, I don't want a beginner who's got all gotten all excited, you know, motivated to blame their own abilities when it, really the truth is the instrument is not in good shape. You know what else happens? You might have a builder who has their, their beginner instruments, their cardboard instruments, and they might have actually been really clear with this person that, look, if, if you're a musician, you probably want to get something better. I don't think they're going to say that usually. Oh, okay. Well, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> and there's some great cardboard ones out there, by the way, that rival a whole lot of of wooden ones, yeah. in my experience. But th this, let's talk about setup again. This idea that all these little things matter. The placement of the nut, the bridge, the zero fret if you have one, the height of the strings, um, any compensation that's done to the bridge. Uh, these little things, you know, how I have... This guy, Dan Blom, he does this stuff for me. And a lot of people, like a lot of builders will say, well, I can do that stuff for you. And this is a sensitive area because I don't want them doing it for me. I mean, ideally, uh -huh. ideally, that that would be great. You know, you've you got your favorite builder, they got a file on you, and they always... I'm. I just know if I go to Dan, he'll make all my dulcimers feel just perfect. And 
I remember Lynn McSpadden saying one time, if they did a full setup on each person, not only do they not know exactly what each person would like to have, because it's different for each player, um, it would take it would take enough time where they kind of lose their profit margin on the instrument. Um, and really, I believe that. huh? I I completely believe that. And so, what would have to happen is. Like, it's not unusual for me to go to Dan with a brand new instrument and give him a hundred bucks to make it just right for me. Well, really, that means that McSpadden retail price should be an extra hundred bucks. And the thing is, not everybody wants or even needs the setup that I require. For a whole lot of people, right out of the box, it's pretty darn good. You know, so why should McSpadden go to the the extent to do all these little things that only Steve Seifert really wants and just the way I want it. But and another and another player who's who's equal to you and what they do might want it slightly differently. Right. Butch Ross likes thicker strings, you know. Right. And he uses shorter vibrating string lengths. So I guess what I'm saying is it's always a touchy subject because the builder's like, I can do this for you. And I'm like, look, I love you enough to not ask you to do this uh, i've got a guy that does it and i can run to his house any day i can go there today and something else though dan specializes in setup um he sets up famous he's done eddie van halen's guitars he's done he regularly does lyle love it he's got big artists coming to him and he does repair guitars but he is doing setup all the time, all the time. He's done it for years. I'd rather have that guy do my setup, you know? But it, it it's it's an insult to the dulcimer builders when I suggest I'll let my own guy do it a little bit, maybe. Hmm. Well, there's nothing we can do about that. You sound like you're chewing bubblegum and surfing the net. You don't even know what I'm talking about, do you? No, I do. Uh, I was just looking up. I wanted to find out what the actual name for the butterfly effect in chaos theory is. Because oh, for I think, goodness sake. Well, no. I was thinking maybe about Hollis popcorn. It may just be called the butterfly effect. And, and the reason that was interesting to me at the moment was because I think what you're talking about right now, if we could take this thing back to you talking about the capos, you can change that. You can You have the ability to tell almost everyone a better way to put their capo on and play in tune. Now you, now, you can't do it individually, but if you tell enough people, you can make a difference. And, and, and it's a good, it's a positive thing you're doing, right? I think so. But, but you're <laughs> hey, saying anybody, I'm like a butterfly. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Would anybody argue that you're wrong? Oh yeah, about? and I'd listen to it to a point. But can I've, you, I've seen can you it. make their argument? Here's something: it works enough for me in a noticeable way that I may not have time to entertain your argument. You know? No, but can you make their argument for them? What would their reason be? Well, I'll make one. I for can't them. make an argument. Well, I'll make one for them, and I think it's legit. Okay. That I don't. I don't care about being that fussy about it. I just put the thing on there and play. Okay, well, good for you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think you would. You could add more to that. Well, good for you. I mean, if you're happy with the way that sounds, that's fine. But if you're looking for, you know, perfection, uh, dealing with metaphysical reality, <laughs> you're stretching the strings in a way that they can't be as in tune as they optimally could. Well, there's no doubt that I obsess over tuning, and some people be like, I think you're getting too crazy about that. But with today's modern electronic tuners, you can, I think people have been more and more in tune over the last 20 years, you know? That's true. And so it's kind of like, um, even when people are almost in tune, they're a heck of a lot better than they were 30 years ago. Right. And there is perfection and there is reasonable optimal perfection. Reasonable optimal perfection is perfection to me. Yeah, well. 
you could actually argue that it could be more perfect, but it's not reasonable. And we are not sure what optimal is because there's some point out in the future where somebody could find a way to make it be more perfect. You know, this is a whole other podcast if we went down this road, but it is a consideration. There's this thing in Mountain Dulcimer where they say there's no wrong way to play the Mountain Dulcimer. And it's both true and false. It's true in that. A thing either is or isn't, and it can't be neither or both. Yes, but you're smart enough to know I'm getting ready to propose two side-by-side truths that are often bundled into one. Right? Sure. (laughs) Right. I think, well, well, that's a false dichotomy. It's not a dichotomy. It's it's two separate things. Yeah, it's a logical fallacy if it doesn't apply if a thing either is or is it and it can't be stroking out right now (laughs) i am not sorry i'll stop keep going so let's take i know this premise uh it's actually two different ideas when somebody says there's no wrong way to play a dulcimer what they're really talking about i think is this is supposed to be for you and it's supposed to be for fun and don't let a bunch of opinions from other people and judgments weigh you down. This instrument's here to serve you. Enjoy yourself. Okay. Sure. So that's, that's true. <laughs> so what you want to ask and sorry for going back to just straight logic stuff is, can you explain what you mean by that? Right. Well, and please define your terms. <laughs> right. But the second way, of course, is a, there absolutely is a wrong way to play the instrument. Let's say that you decide you're going to play, but you no longer will breathe while you play. Well, you're only going to be able to do at tops probably a 45-second song. Now, if you like that, that's fine. But here's what I think makes it right or wrong. Is it, is it sustainable physically? Um, will your, are you making listenable music? You know, are are you enjoying yourself? All that stuff goes in. Of course you can play wrong. You you can try to play with your butt, and that's not going to last long. <laughs> Way to keep it classy there, Steve. <laughs> I think that um, this idea that music should be listenable, if you say, if you're tuning your instrument and you say, well, that's close enough. Well, maybe it's close enough for you, and that's great. But if you're going to ask the rest of us to listen to it, um. Maybe you ought to give it a second go over, you know? Right. Um, but I also think you could have a performer that's so interesting. They got a package going on. Um, like Joni Mitchell, if you listen to some of her stuff on YouTube from the 70s, her tuning was a little off. And some of that's intentional, but some of it wasn't. And it, you know what? It doesn't matter to me. It's so listenable. You've got her physical appearance. You have the song that she wrote, the lyrics, the melody. You got the fact that she's singing. She's got rhythm. You know, it's like uh, I could see where I'm I'm all obsessing about one little thing. Like, you got to get this capo on just like this, you know. Somebody might have enough of a package where it doesn't matter. They're still listenable, still interesting. And if they're just playing for themselves and they're happy, then who cares? And, you know, what? I don't want to burden somebody with a list of 50 things you must do to be considered an, a, a legitimate whatever. I hate that kind of thing. But I obsess over it because I enjoy it. I like the effect it has on the sound. I like the way it feels. And I do this for a living, you know. I remember you telling me a story which... You might have told me it, it. It may be apocryphal. You're not sure, but uh, about not was it Gaylord Entertainment saying something about people not playing nostalgia anymore? Yeah, I think it was possibly. I'm guessing it was around '96, seven or eight. They sent out a notice. These are the people that run the Grill Opry and used to, I believe. I don't think that's changed. And they used to uh, run uh, Opry Land, like the theme park. But they sent out a letter to all the people I guess they had any kind of relations with. And it just said, Gaylord Entertainment, I think that's what it said. I'm getting older, you know. Uh, is no Gaylord Entertainment is no longer endorsing nostalgia-based entertainment. And I took that to mean anything that's in the neighborhood of Hee Haw. You know, an outhouse, 
somebody with overalls. They were what made me think of that, though, was you're talking about Joni Mitchell's instrument maybe not being perfectly in tune, and maybe that was intentional. And I was thinking, oh, I wonder how you would approach that if if that particular tune you were, like the thing the gig you did a few weeks ago where you played a bunch of her songs with a singer, would you intentionally do that because of nostalgia? Uh, it's it depends on the role. I mean, I always think the musicians often it's almost like we're actors playing a role and we happen to manipulate sound, you know, make music. I could see me doing that on Saturday Night Live or something. But, you know, no, typically I'm going to... I'll tell you what I did do. She used that 135 tuning. Um, and I guess I tuned... I guess I tuned DF sharp A. I went ahead and made the... Um, I went ahead and tuned to pure intervals, so it was not equal temperament. I even set my Peterson tuner so that it would tune it like this. So I had a pure third, no beat frequency, pure fifth, no beat frequency. I'm aware of the risks of doing that, but I think that's what she was kind of doing by ear. And it's, it has a certain charm to it. I didn't just do it out of nostalgia. I did it to get the effect I think she got. So I don't know. Wow, that seems awfully complicated. A lot of stuff to think about. Who wants to talk about that at the end of this podcast? Can we get back to popcorn? The so at that at that fair, do you think there was uh, there was some kettle corn? Yeah. Here's the thing about popcorn. You think people man. buy dulcimers because of kettle corn? No, I think they just go hand in hand. I the popcorn that most of us are buying in the grocery stores, there's a hull, right? That's the stuff that sticks to the back of your throat or gets in between your teeth. Mm, thanks. Why don't you get online and look up popcorn? Because there is a wide uh, variety of popcorn. And some of the best popcorn, and I, I ate this for the better part of a year, hullless popcorn. That thing that sticks to your throat or gets between your teeth, it's not in Franken there. Frankencorn. Frankencorn. Nah, and I, I even think it's an older thing. I don't think it's genetic. I don't think it's uh, genetically modified G G GMPs. I think that it's just it a type of popcorn. Now, for some reason, we're doing the one with the hull in it. I want to quit living that life. Are you are you anti-hull now? What's yes. up? Yes. And my favorite popcorn, I think it's called Ladyfinger. I'm going to look Looking that up. up. I'm going to look that up. You look it up too. Ladyfinger popcorn. Here, uh, Amazon sells a uh, Ladyfinger hullless popcorn. That's all I'm saying. This is the stuff. This is the stuff we used. Whirly See, Pop Amish Country. If you have to have gourmet popcorn to enjoy popcorn you you're a popcorn geek it's not gourmet popcorn it's just normal popcorn and it doesn't cost much it's it, what is this 22.80 for how much six pounds dude all right i'll try it doesn't seem like it uh it could hurt i'm gonna tell you this much <laughs> if somebody out there tries this hollis popcorn and you miss the haul i'll find a way to send you a whole bag of haul <laughs> and you can Ooh, just stick that all over your face. No, I don't like it. Yeah. Can you imagine dying like that with hall stuck all in your teeth and everything? I don't want to. I like feel a, every time I pop one of those uh, microwave popcorn things in, I feel like I'm shortening my life. Oh come on! I do. I don't think that can be good for you. It's not that I'm afraid of the microwave, but. Popcorn to me is getting to stay all night at my grandparents' house and feeling like a big boy because I mean it was cooked on it. You know, yeah, because the there's and, a feeling that goes. With and it. you had you had to shake it, and it was dangerous, and you knew it could be dangerous. But your grandma still said, "You can do it. Just be careful." It's honey. not unusual for my family uh, to use a skillet, you know, and end up to put some grease down in there and put the popcorn in and put a lid on it, just the right oh. amount of popcorn. And as soon as that stuff pops, dump it in a bowl, put more popcorn and grease in. I mean, that's a good way to go. It is a good way to go. One time we made popcorn uh, over a campfire and the popcorn went, it was like a popcorn bomb went off. <laughs> and the popcorn went like 
three or four feet out from the fire in every direction, and all of us were on our hands and knees eating popcorn off the ground. Now that's a good time. I believe that. I believe that's a true story. All right. Hey, Steve, thanks for doing this podcast with me today. Hey, listen, as we wrap this up, for anybody who stayed with us through popcorn nostalgia. I can't even nostalgia. imagine anybody's listening right Popcorn now. nostalgia. Uh, this show, for those who listen to this as soon as they come out, may seem like it's running late. We actually did another show, and uh, I think, um, I'm, I guess I'll go ahead and promise this now. What? Don't promise anything. Uh, no, I'll do it. This isn't going to be that hard for me to do. The other show that we did that was supposed, the reason this one's late, this is a makeup, uh, we had a computer glitch, and it's kind of funny because it turned my voice into something that sounds like a, uh, a computer itself. Like a robot. Like a robot. So I'm probably going to take 30 seconds or so after this ends, and I actually will, after the music ends, I'll put a little bit of it out on the end of this so that you can hear it and it sort of sounds like steve's having a conversation with a robot so i liked it sometimes i do feel like i'm having a conversation with a robot when you're talking to me no nah, or just in general i was just picking on you i love yeah. you i love you too i don't like that now <laughs> i just want to say i, I love you feels. but i don't need you to say it back why is it why is it if i say love you man I like that. That doesn't make you feel uncomfortable like going, I love you, Steve. I don't like that. I don't want to I snuggle. Know. I don't want to snuggle. That's all I'm saying. All right. See you later. Catch you later. Hello, Steve. Hey, Dan Landrum. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Ex How about you? Yeah, no letters from lawyers or anything. This show is? That means we're harmless. I don't think we're cute. You're maybe cute, depending on the hat. Yeah. Now people love this topic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can get into the zone pretty quick. You know, I mean, that might sound silly, but when I'm playing, I can immediately be completely immersed in an expressive, enjoyable, musical kind of headspace. Yeah.